Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey everyone, I want to tell you all about our sponsor, Whoop. Life can be stressful. We're all impacted by stress differently though, from what we do at work, how we train, and our lives at home, we're constantly exerting ourselves. And oftentimes, we only think about what we do to stay fit and how we eat, but we overlook the importance of sleep in all of this. Tomorrow's best work though is done by night, and our sponsor, Whoop, is a fitness tracker strap with an incredible app that helps monitor your sleep. Whoop provides the personalized insights to make smarter performance habits from your sleep. Whoop tracks all things sleep, from your sleep cycles, stages, disturbances, and efficiency. Based on how strenuous your day is, Whoop will provide suggested sleep times so your body is able to get the rest it needs to recover. Whoop also automatically tracks workouts so you can focus on your training. Whoop has a built-in app that's amazing, and it has this cool feature that allows you to track your strain from training in real time, monitor your calories burned, heart rate, and what zone your heart is in. The Whoop Strap 3.0 has five-day battery life and on-the-go charging, so you never need to take it off, and it's even waterproof. You can also sync your heart rate to compatible treadmills, bikes, and rowers. And the Whoop membership service provides a fitness tracker for free and gives members access to their app, which provides personalized insight into recovery, strain, and sleep. If you're looking to be smarter about how you sleep, recover, and train so you can be at your best, you have to get Whoop. Whoop is offering 15% off to our audience when you go to whoop.com and use the code H at checkout. That's W-H-O-O-P dot com and use the code H-T at checkout to save 15% off your order. Unlock your best self today with Whoop. All right, guys, take care and be legendary. Hello, everyone. I want to take a moment to talk to you about our very own Impact Theory Planner. As you guys know, I'm absolutely a psychopath for setting goals and figuring out concrete steps to track my results along the journey. That's why I needed for my own sanity to develop the Impact Theory Planner. This thing is an amazing way for you guys to organize your thoughts, make sure you know what it is that you're trying to accomplish, that you're following the steps you need to get there. The Impact Theory Planner allows you to track your goals for two full months, 60 days, where you can look at your goals daily, weekly, and monthly. The planner is undated, so you can start your journey anytime in the year. The daily pages keep you on task with daily guidance and strategic prompts. The weekly pages keep you accountable and fine-tune your focus. 
and the monthly pages help you reflect on the progress that you're making and how you're evolving. The first month of the planner includes a habit tracker, this is critical, and our 25-point impact theory belief system, which if you have not embedded in your soul, now is definitely the time. Those are the 25 most important beliefs that you could have and be living your life in accordance with. You'll also find 30 extra blank pages for note-taking, brainstorming, and working through patterns and beliefs. The Impact Theory Planner has a high-quality faux leather hardcover and plenty of space to write in the 7-inch by 10-inch size. You'll also find some of the most amazing quotes on the planet that I've been collecting for decades and that I've put all throughout the Impact Theory Planner. It is never too late to start planning your goals, but you need to get started right now. Now, so go purchase the Impact Theory Planner by clicking the link in our episode show notes or just visit amazon.com slash shops slash impact theory. That's amazon.com slash shops slash impact theory. Once again, you can click the link in our episode show notes or just visit amazon.com slash shops slash impact theory. All right, guys, this one is going to help you reach your goals. If you use it, I'm telling you, it will propel you forward far faster. Take care and be legendary. Everybody, welcome to Health Theory. Today's guest is Chris Kresser. He's a best-selling author and functional medicine practitioner who founded the Kresser Institute, which trains doctors and health coaches in evolutionary health practices. He was named one of the top 100 most influential people in health and wellness by greatest.com, and he's become known far and wide for his individualized, non-dogmatic approach to diet and lifestyle. Chris, welcome to the show, my friend. Tom, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dude, it's good to have you, man. I'm excited about this. So I've obviously seen a ton of footage um, on you and the things you talk about. Uh, I'm somebody who is really fiendish about health and wellness as it relates to just accomplishing what you want in life. So my last company was a nutrition company. And when I started the mindset stuff, people wanted to know why the protein bar guy was talking about mindset. Now that I'm full-time mindset, people are like, why am I talking about health? But to me, they're they're just inextricably connected. Um, how would you define sort of your overarching strategy when it comes to um, individualized notions of of getting it right, getting it dialed in? How do how do you think about people approaching it? Yeah, uh, great question. So, I mean, it's certainly true that we share a lot in common as human beings. You know, we're we're the same species. We have um, the same general anatomy and physiology. But it's also true that we have a lot of important differences. We have, uh, you know, different genes, different gene expression, different lifestyle, different goals, different health statuses. Uh, we live in different climates and environments, and all of that can affect what an optimal dietary approach is for a given person. And not only that, that will change over time with each person. So, for example, imagine someone who is a, you know, high-level athlete in their late teens and, and 20s, um, that would require a certain dietary approach. But then in their 40s or 50s, they're a sedentary office worker. Uh, you know, they're no longer performing at a high level. And, and so that would be a totally different uh, dietary need or situation. Or somebody who uh, develops a chronic illness, an autoimmune disease, their dietary needs would change versus my, what they might have been before that illness. So I think uh, a lot of the public health messages around diet um, are oriented around trying to come up with one ideal 
approach for everybody. And I think that's doomed to fail. Certainly we can extract certain fundamental principles that apply to everybody as a baseline. And then using all of those characteristics that I mentioned before to create the uh, ideal uh, approach for each individual. Okay. So before we dive into some of the individual stuff, which you said some things in the intro, like climate, um, that I, I actually haven't heard people talk about before. So I'll be really interested to dive into that. But first let's talk about those fundamental principles. So you talk about food quality. What, what does that mean? Like how does the average person, I'm going to guess you're going to say whole food, but I'd love to, to really put a fine point on what you mean by food quality and what those general guidelines are. So um, let's kind of first distinguish between food quantity and food quality. So, and, and look, uh, to answer this properly, I have to actually look a little bit historically at dietary guidelines and what the recommendations have centered around has mostly been quantity, quantity of certain macronutrients like carbohydrates or fat, you know, the low fat guidelines for 50 years, 40 years, American Heart Association, or uh, quantities of nutrients, like how much you know, vitamins you should eat or minerals you should eat, uh, or quantities of specific foods like red meat or dairy products or you know saturated fats or trans fats. And uh, the problem with that approach is that it's led to what uh, food philosopher Gregory Scrinis calls nutritionism, which is this kind of myopic focus on the isolated components of food rather than the overall quality of the diet pattern. So by overall quality, you're right. We're speaking of, is this a, a real food? Is it something that grows in the ground or lives in nature it, or versus something that is in a bag or a box and is highly processed through the industrial food system? Is it nutrient dense? So nutrient density is a measure of the concentration of nutrients in food relative to its calories or weight. And uh, we want to be focusing on foods that are highly nutrient dense. That's a measure of quality in addition to, you know, whether it's a real food or a whole food. So if we focus on foods that are high quality, they're nutrient dense, they're whole foods, they're anti-inflammatory, then in most cases, not all, and we can talk about the specifics of that, that's like 80 or 90% of the battle right there. And then the remaining 10 or 20% is just tweet the, the twisting of the dial to get the optimal approach for each person, maybe a little more carbohydrate or a little less carbohydrate or a little more of this food, a little less of that food, excluding those foods, including those foods. But people tend to focus on that 10 or 20% and not enough on the 80 to 90%. And certainly that's been true of the dietary guidelines. It's it is really interesting to me what happens in uh, food. So food has become a new religion. So back at Quest, we created what, dude, I cannot tell you. There are two times in my life where I created a piece of content that I did not think was controversial. I thought people were going to love it, and they lost their minds. One was when I wrote an article called It's All Your Fault. Looking back on that one, I get why people were triggered by it. I still agree. I think I was right, but I get why that one's triggering for people. And then the other one was that we put out a video that basically was like, hey, a calorie is not a calorie, right? It, it really matters where it comes from. And so the nutritional um, 
makeup of a Twinkie is very different than the nutritional makeup of a steak or something else, or even just match it, you know, macronutrient to macronutrient, a, a carbohydrate yeah. from like a potato or something like that. Sure. So, and people lost their shit, dude. It was crazy. You want to talk about something I did not think was controversial and people went bananas. So go a little bit deeper for me on, um, why do you think people get so dogmatic about this? Why has this become the new religion? What do you think it is about the human psyche that drives people to be so fucking dogmatic about this stuff? Yeah, I, I like to look at it through the ancestral evolutionary lens, as I do with diet and lifestyle factors. I think it's evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology can really help us help shed light on some of these behaviors that, that are natural to humans but don't seem that adaptive or helpful <laughs> at this point in our in our evolutionary history. Um, but humans are, you know, uh, we're tribal animals, and um, the you know it, we it had to be that way. Like in a natural environment, we couldn't survive uh, most of us probably very well for very long if we weren't if we didn't have the support of the tribe. And so that means we tend to strongly identify with a, a certain group of people. And uh, because that makes us feel safe. And if we if we feel like we're apart from that tribe or we're excommunicated from that tribe, then we we feel essentially the fear of death. And uh, we don't, and you know, consciously go around thinking that way. I think it really comes down to like a basic survival instinct mm -hmm. um, where I'm going to I'm going to throw my, you know, a lot in with this group and therefore everybody else is other and it sets up that that natural conflict um but diet is a is an area that um is pretty universal it applies to everybody you know we eat some of us two times a day some three times a day some more and the public health ramifications of the diet rec you know dietary advice and uh, that is given both by public health officials and now by bloggers, authors, and doctors and nutritionists and other experts has pretty profound ramifications, you know, for the health, our health, not only individually, but also as a society. So I think it's a big deal. I think we're seeing the impacts of poor dietary choices in our country and elsewhere in the industrialized world um, that are literally threatening to bankrupt our country. And as we've seen now with covid 19 that are uh, an issue of life and death. You know, one of the most sobering statistics that I've seen in this whole epidemic is that people under 65 years of age with pre-existing conditions, which are virtually all lifestyle and diet driven conditions are at as high of risk for hospitalization as people who are over 65 with no pre-existing conditions. Mm -hmm. So if you're a 45 year old person with type two diabetes, you have the same risk of being hospitalized as a 70-year-old or a 75-year-old that doesn't have any of those pre-existing conditions. And that, if that's not a wake-up call, I don't know what is. Yeah, no joke. How much have you been paying attention to COVID-19? One of the things that I'm um, really intrigued to learn more about is the um, tie. They're saying that um, being obese is like a brutal factor in terms of mortality rate with COVID-19. Um, which is scary, but I don't understand the mechanism. I don't know if you know much about it. Well, yeah, I've paid close attention to COVID-19. Uh, I have seen articles about obesity. What's interesting is that in, in the studies that I've read that have looked at the existence of pre-existing conditions and their relationship with both 
hospitalization and, and death. Obesity hasn't been quantified. They've looked, yes, they've looked at diabetes and blood sugar issues. They've looked at cardiovascular disease. They've looked at kid, chronic kidney disease. They've looked at smoking. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're going to have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things, and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online, and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination. 
yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. But they actually haven't characterized obesity as one of those risk factors. Now, we know that many people who are obese, not everyone, but many people who have who are obese also have either pre-diabetes or diabetes. And one of the theories right now, this is not proven, there's a lot more research that's needed, is that one of the pathological, or perhaps the main pathological mechanism of COVID is that it interferes with oxygen deliverability, with hemoglobin's ability to deliver oxygen to the cells. And this is one theory why ventilators are not working as well as as they would hope and may even be causing harm. Uh, you know, a very high percentage of people who are ventilated end up dying uh, and they're on ventilators for a much longer period of time than would typically be expected, is that the ventilator can't necessarily move the oxygen around. That's the job of hemoglobin. And if there's uh, something that's causing hypoxia or lack of oxygen, then um, then a ventilator in that situation wouldn't necessarily help. Um, what I heard and, along those lines, tell me if this is um, what you've heard as well, is that basically the ventilator is working at a mechanical level. For somebody that has a traditional pneumonia, you're just so fatigued, you you almost can't do the physical act of breathing anymore. And so the ventilator is going to help yeah. that. It's, it's going to force your lungs to move and for you to breathe. But if the problem is at a cellular level and you're just not able to, to shuttle the oxygen, essentially do the gas exchange, right, that um, it doesn't matter whether you're exactly artificially right. breathing or not. And the reason that diabetes is problematic, one reason and one you know, speculative mechanism here is that uh, in, in diabetes, hemoglobin becomes glycated with sugar. It becomes- So it's already problematic. The, exactly. So the blood sugar levels are high. For, really fast. Let me, let me interrupt you there. I'm gets, super curious. So mm-hmm. are people that are struggling with diabetes, are they already having a problem with oxygen transport? Yeah, I think that's fair to say that that's, uh, especially when you see the levels of A1C get higher, that that's, that's one of the issues with diabetes. So, you know, we can also extend that to say that anything that interferes with oxygen deliverability, including anemia, which hasn't yet been measured as a contributing risk factor pre-existing condition is important. And this, of course, takes us back to the relevance of a nutrient-dense diet, because you know, the most common cause of anemia is iron deficiency anemia, which affects 2 billion people Whoa. around the world, 2 billion people, Whoa, mostly no in developing in developing countries. But uh, here in the U.S., it's still a big issue, um, particularly among people who are malnourished and are, are undernourished and, you know, underserved communities. And then there are other causes of nutritional anemia too, like B12 and folate deficiency, a lot of drugs. And this is a, another double whammy effect here. A lot of people who are, have diabetes take metformin, mm-hmm. uh, and metformin depletes uh, folate and B12 levels, which uh, can cause or contribute to a nutritional anemia, B12 macrocytic anemia. So I don't think we've even begun to get a grasp on all of the different ways that these mechanisms co-mingle uh, and interact with one another. So do they haven't quantified obesity yet? Um, they've obviously, as you said, looked at several different things. Do you have a rough order of like, what are the most terrifying underlying conditions? I know smoking is brutal because of the way that it compromises the lungs. Um, is that the worst thing that you could be doing? Is diabetes the worst thing? Like what are the, the most troubling underlying factors? Have they sort of ranked them? 
different studies have found different results. Diabetes seems to be at the top of the list in most of the studies that I've seen, uh, which was actually surprising, you know, given that this is a, res a severe respiratory illness. I think um, we would have thought that uh, people with, you know, pre-existing lung conditions would rank mm. at higher risk for for complications. But if this is if this um, theory about hypoxia at a cellular level is true, and diabetes impairs oxygen deliverability, then that makes sense, right? It's not just so much about uh, the lungs themselves, but about the whole body systemic response to the illness. But certainly people with chronic lung disease and, and including asthma. So some of the younger people who have died um, from COVID have been people with asthma that were otherwise mm -hmm. relatively healthy. They didn't necessarily have diabetes or cardiovascular disease or anything else. They had and, and they didn't even necessarily have, you know, fully active asthma, like people who are immunocompromised. So uh, that can include people who've undergone, you know, chemotherapy or cancer treatment, um, you know, immune deficiencies, uh, prolonged use of corticosteroid drugs, like people with autoimmune diseases who've been taking uh, prednisone or something like that for a long time. Um, Chronic kidney disease, which I mentioned is another major risk factor, and liver disease. Even the CDC has said that severe obesity, with like people with a BMI over 40, um, is a risk factor. But I think it's likely that it just, you know, regular obesity, obesity with a BMI less than 40 could be a risk factor too, especially if it's showing up with diabetes or prediabetes. Mm. So going back then to B12, B12 is something that I hear you talk about a lot. I, I don't understand its role at all. Uh, I don't know what it does. Um, give me give me like a brief primer on B12 and why it matters so much. Yeah, so um, B12 is a, a critical nutrient that's involved in the, the uh, uh, in a lot of stuff, but uh, in this context that you're asking about, particularly in the maturation of red blood cells. So one way to think about it is like um, red blood cells go through kind of like a Benjamin, what was it, Benjamin, Benjamin Button? Button that, yeah. That, yeah, so where he starts out uh, old and gets younger over time. So red blood cells actually start out uh, large and then they get smaller over time like when they're when red cells red blood cells are born you know when they're first produced they're large and they get smaller over time and b12 uh is part of that process of maturation and if there's not enough b12 in this in the body then the red blood cells don't develop normally they be, they stay large and they're shaped like an oval rather than round like healthy blood cells and then that causes the, the bone marrow to make fewer red blood cells overall. And in some cases, it causes premature death of the red blood cells. So then uh, since they carry hemoglobin, hemoglobin what delivers oxygen, then you can develop what's called macrocytic anemia. Macro meaning large, large cell anemia, which is differentiated from iron deficiency anemia, which is microcytic, which means small, uh, uh, small cell anemia. So... Um, B12 is is um, mostly present in animal foods, true B12. Um, and so people who are vegetarian or vegan are at higher risk of B12 deficiency if they're not supplementing. But even people who eat an omnivorous diet can develop B12 deficiency. It's not because they're vegan by choice, but they're, they're just malnourished. But 
it's just, it's encouraging that we're starting to understand this a little bit better because once you understand the mechanisms better then the, the doorway for therapeutics, whatever they may be is, is much more open than it is when you don't really even know what you're trying to accomplish mm. with the therapeutics. Well, let's talk about some prophylactics. So, um, obviously people can supplement B12. What do you think about cardio? So I despise cardio. Um, I really only do cardio when I'm really trying to get lean, but mm -hmm. legitimately about seven minutes ago, I thought the second this interview is over, I am going to a treadmill because if this is around the ability yeah. to, um, lung capacity, red blood cells, um, getting move oxygen around, exactly yeah. getting my, my cardio on point, uh, might be truly, uh, something to really consider. I, I agree a hundred percent. Uh, I'm, I'm with you. I don't, I don't love cardio. I'll do it if it's in the context of something that I enjoy doing. <laughs> like I like to surf, I like to ski. I'm not doing any, obviously either of those right now. Um, I like to ride my bike. I think really anything that improves your blood flow right now. So even strength training, although it's not necessarily increasing lung capacity, it's probably increasing blood flow, which is a good, good thing to do right now. Um, of course, diet is critical always, but it's even more so now, especially if you're someone who's at risk for, you know, higher blood sugar. Uh, the reality, at least from what I am reading and seeing is, is that this is, you know, while the, we might reach the peak case, the number of cases from this initial wave in the next couple of weeks, COVID's not going anywhere anytime soon. And, you know, I wish that were not true. Mm. Um, but it's it, this is likely going to be with us in some capacity for tw you know 12 to 18 months and maybe even seasonally for you know until there's an effective vaccine developed so what this means is that it's not just a question of like what do you do tomorrow or in the next couple of weeks to prepare it's what do you do for the next year or two and going forward to reduce your um, your risk and one of the most important things for sure is to control your blood sugar. So if you're someone who's got pre-diabetic or diabetic level blood sugar, then, you know, taking action through diet to lower that blood sugar considerably and get it back into normal range, I would think is the probably one of the biggest ROI things you could do. Um, so that could be a, a low carb diet, a keto diet, um, you know, protein sparing, modified fast. There are a number of dietary approaches that have been proven to be effective for diabetes. Uh, but it also means strength training, getting enough sleep, managing your stress. Uh, all of these things are also really important when it comes to lowering blood sugar. Like just stress alone, which is hard to avoid <laughs> right now, raises cortisol. And what does cortisol do? What, what's its main job in the body is to raise blood sugar when it falls too low. Now, um, that was an evolutionary mechanism when we would go periods of time without eating and our blood sugar would drop. Cortisol would be there to keep it stable. But that backfires on us now when if most people's blood sugar doesn't ever fall too low and cortisol is just raising it um, uh, to unhealthy levels. So, those are, you know, I think sleep, physical activity, exercise, strength training, cardio, uh, stress management, which is even more critical now than ever before, and a, a, a diet that, specifically a diet that manages blood sugar levels are probably the most important things people can be doing right now. Great advice. 
What is up, Impactivists? Hope you guys are enjoying this episode. Wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsors and then we'll get right back to it. Remember, our sponsors are all hand chosen. We love these guys and think that they have something incredibly valuable to offer. So be sure to give them a listen. A lot of these guys are doing special offers just for you. Hey guys, did you know that 76% of customers hang up if they don't reach a live person and 85% of customers won't even call back after an unanswered call? When you're building your business, it's not always possible to shift focus and answer every call. Well, that's where Pat Live comes in. They will answer every call when you can't. Pat Live offers 24-7 live answering services so you can spend less time following up and more time growing your business. And Pat Live's virtual receptionists are available 365 days a year. Pat Live's agents are all U.S.-based and provide all the benefits of a personal receptionist at a fraction of the cost. They offer fully customizable scripts and call handling experiences to fit your specific business needs. PatLive is more than just an answering service, though. They offer everything from message taking, call screening and transfers to lead collection, appointment scheduling, order processing, and more. Now, for a limited time only, PatLive is offering Impact Theory listeners 15% off their regularly listed rates. This offer is only available over the phone, so give them a call now at 866-708-2507. If you didn't write that down the first time, here we go again. That's 866-708-2507, and mention this podcast for more information or visit P-A-T-L-I-V-E.com. That's patlive.com. Make every call count, guys, with Pat Live. All right, guys, take care. Be legendary. So one thing I want to um, follow up on is one of the things that I, um, I like most about your approach and the conclusions that you've come to is that it's based on being a clinician. Um, and one thing that I, I find drives me crazy about the current state of the different nutritional debates is, look, studies are important, man. I, I for sure, 100%, and I'm often very moved, moved to action, in fact, by studies that I read. So this is not me downplaying studies. This is me saying that there's so much individual variability. There's so much complexity that uh, of the study and the way the study is constructed of humans and just nutrition of biology that the idea that you're going to get the full picture for yourself from a single study is it's basically zero. So I have to imagine that there are things that you just see like, ah, fuck, this is anecdotal. I've had 10 patients, but it worked for all 10. I have a theory and I'm just going to roll with that. That to me is actually more powerful. It's more valuable when it's working in the real world with individual people whose lives have turned around um, than just the studies. What are some things that you see like just on a day-to-day basis? Maybe you're not even sure why it's working yet, um, but that you see in the trenches with patients um, that is interesting and that you're sort of pushing out now to more and more patients. Yeah. Uh, I, I think one thing that I, that I'm, I mean, this isn't like a new thing or anything novel, but uh, fasting is very interesting to me as a lever. And by, by that, I mean all different kinds of fasting. So intermittent fasting, you know, uh, time restricted eating, alternate day fasting, longer periods of just water fasting, you know, like, fa- or, or, or broth fasting, um, what is sometimes referred to as fat fasting, where, you know, somebody 
mostly fast, but might eat 200 to 400 calories of like coconut oil or something like that. So to increase the ketogenic response of the fast, um, that would increase the ketogenic response in some cases. Yeah. Especially if it's MCT or coconut oil, um, because MCT is ketogenic, uh, there's a saying in medicine that fasting is the cure for all diseases. And if you look in the scientific literature, that's really true. Like there are lots of conditions that will um, completely reverse during un, in a fasted state. So when they say the that, is that, give me the length of fast that they're talking about. So are we talking a five day water only? They're, three yeah, day? they're usually talking about like, you know, three to seven day fast. And what you can sometimes see in those situations is like pretty severe autoimmune diseases will like re- almost completely reverse in some cases during that fasted period, the symptoms really com- almost completely go away. The problem is that fasting is also the cure for life <laughs> if you do if you do it for too long, right? So um, I, you know, but I think that this is a an underexplored area, certainly in conventional medicine. It's definitely like in my world, lots of people are exploring it and lots of people are doing it. But I've seen um, really p- powerful and significant changes um, f- in people who are doing intermittent fasting and more extended fasting, perhaps as much or more than just about any other intervention. So I'm really exploring that a lot more. Uh, you've probably heard of carnivore diet and like this increasing interest in people who are just eating meat and animal products and nothing else. I have a theory that's just a theory. It's not confirmed um, that the reason so many people feel better this day, people who have like severe autoimmune diseases or are going into remission and stuff like that is that it essentially works in a, in a similar way that fasting works on the gut where when you fast, there's no new input that's um, feeding any bacteria in your gut. And if you have a lot of pathogenic bacteria and microbes in your gut, they're going to start to die Mm -hmm. because the substrate that they need to survive is no longer there. And um, meat and animal products get digested pretty high up in the small intestine and don't generally reach the large intestine, not to the extent that, you know, fibers and vegetables and plant foods do. And so I think carnivore approach may be kind of mimicking some of the benefits of fasting, but allowing people to sustain that for you know, perhaps indefinitely or why much is it longer that pathogenic um, bacteria or fungi or whatever? Why is it that there aren't pathogenic bugs that are fed through meat? Uh, it's just the case that that uh, car- carbohydrates, particularly you know complex carbohydrates that uh, are linger are not absorbed high up in the intestine are the primary substrate, the thing that most bacteria like uh, and like to metabolize. There's something interesting in there and I don't know what it is. So this is obviously one of the things that we've explored with my wife, um, which was when she was really struggling. We basically, she was eating beef, period, full stop. And that was when she had sort of the biggest um, leap. She hated her life. She didn't like eating like that at all. It was absolutely miserable for her from an emotional eating standpoint. Um, But it was the only thing that reduced her symptoms. Walk us through what you see as like the evolutionary landscape and how much it matters. um, Meaning like my wife is 
um, from a genetic standpoint from the Mediterranean. Um, I am mm-hmm. from uh, Northern Europe. So does that is that relevant or are we just talking hominids? Um, yeah, all, all great questions. And, you know, if we look at the study of human diet, um, you know, an- anthropologically, we see lots of evidence that humans have uh, for the, you know, as as far back as we can see, have, have eaten some combination of plant and animal foods. Now that the pro- ex- exact proportion of plant versus animal foods will vary from population to population. Sometimes it's skewed more heavily towards animal foods, probably most times if, if you if you look at it as a percentage of calories. Um, and then sometimes it's more heavily skewed towards plant foods. And going back to a question you asked early on about climate, the percentage of plants versus animals that human populations ate was pretty strongly related to where they were relative to the equator. So um, populations that were closer to the equator tended to have a relatively higher percentage of plant foods that they consumed in their diet versus animal foods. And populations that were further from the equator tended to have the opposite. So I think that all matters, you know, climate, uh, geography, and then um, in terms of genes, I do think genes probably play some role. Uh, so one example would be lactase persistence. So lactase is the enzyme that breaks down lactose, which is a sugar in milk. And historically, as hunter-gatherers, we didn't produce lactase into adulthood. We only produced it while we were breastfeeding. And as soon as, you know, after that was finished, we didn't keep producing lactase because humans didn't consume milk at that point. But about 11 or 12,000 years ago, there was a random genetic mutation that allowed uh, humans to start digesting, you know, keep producing lactase into adulthood and digest lactose. And uh, that adaptation was selected for, meaning it conferred a survival advantage because milk and dairy products were a good source of calories and a good source of hydration, especially during times of famine. So that mutation spread around the world, but it spread unevenly. So it was very prevalent in the Middle East where it first started, and then it became prevalent in certain areas of Africa and most particularly Northern Europe. So up to like 95% or 97% of Scandinavians, for example, have lactase persistence, this ability to digest lactose into adulthood, whereas only about 30 to 33% of people worldwide have it. So it's actually more common than not for people to not be able to digest lactose around the world, if you look at the world globally. But for someone with Scandinavian heritage, it's almost certain that they can digest milk into adulthood. So the, you know, on the genetics, there's also other, you know, there, there are um, uh, other genes, like there's one that um, may predict our response to starches. So um, AMY1 is a salivary amylase gene that is correlated uh, with uh, you know people who come from populations that historically had a high starch intake have higher levels of this gene, and it may suggest that they might do better with higher starch intake than someone that comes from a population that has a lower intake. 
so those are just two examples. There are many more, uh, but I think genes do play some role in what determines the optimal individual approach. So if somebody like my wife, for instance, who again is Mediterranean, so if she's trying to rebuild her, um, her digestion, uh, the whole microbiome, mm -hmm. the um, mycobiome, microbiome, like the, the whole shebang, is it just like, oh, the standard Mediterranean diet, like that, that's exactly what applies? Or um, how do you sort of group people? Are there a nearly infinite number of groupings or do they sort of fall into five different camps? What does that look like? Yeah, I, I, I think although genes do play a role, I think people's um, like current health status and um, existence or non-existence of um, you know, certain conditions can play a bigger role. So let, let me use an example. You know, let's say someone has significant gut issues that are caused by SIBO, uh, which is bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine, basically bacteria in the place where it shouldn't be. And then that bacteria is fermenting carbohydrates in the small intestine. That ferment, you know, when bacteria metabolize carbohydrates, they produce either hydrogen or methane gas, maybe hydrogen sulfide as well. Those gases um, can kind of wreak havoc in the intestine, and it can also that condition can interfere with nutrient absorption. It can cause a low-grade inflammation, et cetera. So if that condition is present, even if genetically speaking, that person might thrive on a more Mediterranean type of diet, they're probably not going to do well eating certain things that are prevalent in that diet, like legumes or grains. Uh, or, you know, or certain types of carbohydrates that are difficult to digest and break down because um, of that condition. So in other words, that condition is sort of interfering with what a normal genetic response might be to a set of foods. So what does that experimentation protocol look like? So you've got things like the Whole30, um, you know, elimination diet. Um, how do you get people who are struggling? Um, do you have just sort of a general protocol for uh, people to go through? It starts with testing. Um, I'm, I, I'm a big believer in test, don't guess. So at our clinic, we have a whole case review process that includes a lot of different testing. So it's a very comprehensive blood panel. So much more in depth than what you would typically get at a, you know, your, through your primary care doctor. We're looking for blood sugar, of course. We're looking at metabolic function. We're looking at like comprehensive metabolic panels. So that includes like a, the liver aminotransferases, AST, ALT, GGT, bilirubin. We're looking at uh, some of the kidney function markers, phosphorus, potassium, uh, creatinine, EGFR, um, of course the blood sugar markers, lipid status. And then we're looking at all the hormones, nutrient status, uh, immune markers. But then we're doing extensive gut testing. So we're doing a stool test, and that's to look for undetected parasites, which are actually more common than might, most people might believe. Fungal overgrowth, um, which until recently was sort of poo-pooed in the conventional medical world, but there's now been several studies correlating fungal overgrowth with IBD, inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's and IBS. Um, and, and then we sometimes will do a urine organic acids panel, which looks at some, um, byproducts of, of normal metabolic processes and also bacterial metabolism that give us insight into what's happening in the gut. And then we might do 
we also will typically do a test of, for the HPA axis, looking at stress hormone production like cortisol and DHEA. Um, and depending on the patient, we might add a few other tests because that's then what allows us to answer the question that you're asking. Where do you even start? How do you know which diet, which approach is going to be best in that case. And there's kind of a rough way that I sometimes break it down when I'm talking to patients or when I'm training other clinicians. So there's one group of people, which is the majority, the, the largest group of people whose conditions are primarily diet, lifestyle, and behavior driven and can be primarily or almost or exclusively addressed just by modifying those factors without ever seeing a doctor. So you take the sort of average American who's eating, you know, too much highly processed and refined food, is sedentary, is not sleeping enough, and is, you know, overwhelmed with stress, you know, they might end up with diabetes, prediabetes, obesity, irritable bowel syndrome, et cetera. But I could have that person just work with our health coach and nutritionist. And if they were able to follow the guidance being given and, and stick with it, I would say in, in many of those cases, 80% or more of their symptoms would go away and they would basically be back to normal. Then you have another uh, category of patient, which is mostly who I work with just because this is my background of suffering from a complex chronic disease. And it's the kind of patient that I attract is patients with complex chronic illness. And Many of my patients, for example, are extremely educated about diet. They're following not only a, a you know whole foods diet, they're following some very advanced variation of that, you know, like a ketogenic diet or an autoimmune paleo protocol or a low FODMAP diet or something like that. They're doing, they're sleeping, or at least they're trying to, they're, um, you know, they're do doing everything right and they're still sick. And those people will often require functional medicine kind of approach where they get the testing and then they get more advanced treatment. Uh, and it's harder for them to just do that on their own. They're already doing all of the right diet and lifestyle and behavior things and they're still sick. So that's like the, the most meaningful distinction in what I see. Yeah, that makes sense. Because that has implications in terms of how do we design public health interventions? If most of the people are in that former category, then it's not about like more doctors or more medicine. It's about more support for people making these critical diet, lifestyle, and behavior changes. So this is where like health coaches uh, can, I think, make a huge impact on the future of healthcare and on preventing and reversing disease because most disease is diet and lifestyle driven. All right. So give me the ultimate diet and lifestyle. If I want to live amazing, I want to feel good, longevity, high energy, um, what, what does my diet, my lifestyle and supplementation, if that's a component, what does that look like? Well, I would say, you know, all the fundamental principles we've talked about for sure. Um, the, you know, nutrient dense, whole foods, anti-inflammatory diet that's tailored for you based on your health status and also your activity levels. So, for example, if you're extremely active, doing a lot of highly glycolytic activities like mixed martial arts or CrossFit or something like that, you're probably going to need more carbohydrates. If you're not doing those things and you're trying to lower your blood sugar and deal with, um, you know, weight gain or insulin resistance and probably lower carbohydrate intake would work. And then we've got 
you know, seven, eight hours of sleep a night. Um, physical activity, again, that has to be tailored to you based on what your goals are and what's happening for you. Stress management. And then I would add a few other things that I think are really critical and often overlooked. So one is social connection. And this is difficult now for us, right, during COVID-19. And I think all people are feeling the lack of it, of it in a way that they may have never um, fully realized. Lack of social connection in, in study, one study was shown to be a greater risk factor for early death than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Whoa. One of, one of the most mind-blowing studies I've ever seen, but humans are social animals. And when we lack social connection, it has very real measurable effects, um, not just on our emotional and, and psychological well-being, but on our physical health. Um, and then another is spending time outdoors, which again, if you look at it through the ancestral lens, that's something that we, we lived outdoors 24-7 for most of our evolutionary history. And um, being outdoors, it's, it relaxes us, it reduces stress. Uh, sunlight produces vitamin D, it increases nitric oxide, which increases blood flow. Um, and it, it has a regulatory effect on the immune system. So there's so many benefits to being outdoors. Uh, and then lastly, uh, cultivating more pleasure. So people often raise their eyebrows when I, when I say that, because they think, wait, we, we live in this hedonistic society that's totally devoted to pleasure. How can you say that? I would disagree with that. I think our, our society is dedicated to distraction. Um, which is different than pleasure. Pleasure is, a, is an experience that's felt in the whole body when you're fully present and aware of what's going on. There's the release of endorphins happening during pleasure. Give me, Whereas, give me some of the most pleasurable, joyful things that you do. Uh, so uh, surfing is definitely uh, pleasurable. Um, massage is great. Uh, you know, touch is one of the things that can do that the most, um, both for me and for everybody else. Uh, sex, dancing, um, you know, really kind of uh, fully uh, joyful experiences. Listening to music brings a lot of pleasure. Um, all of that's important because it produces chemicals that we um, need actually to, to thrive and live well. So that's that's my prescription. That's pretty good. I dig it. Um, I think you're right. I don't think a lot of people talk about joy. It's an interesting distinction between distraction and pleasure. Uh, that's very interesting. In fact, I know you've meditated for a long ass time. Um, yeah. Where, where do you put that in the everyone should try? Yeah. I don't think I would be here if I, if I hadn't had that, my meditation practice. It's just gotten me through so many challenging periods of my life and enabled me to function and thrive in situations where I, I think I would have otherwise fallen apart. But um, for me, meditation is really about increasing our awareness, our ability to observe what's happening internally, our sensations, our thoughts, our feelings, and what's happening externally um, without uh, getting being becoming totally reactive to those internal or external stimuli. So it's it's about cultivating the witness perspective of being able to witness what's going on and then make a conscious choice about how we're going to respond rather than just a knee-jerk reaction. And that's useful in any area of our life, whether we're in an intimate relationship and we're having a conversation or an argument with our partner or whether we're in an extremely threatening and even life-threatening situation. 
you know, uh, or with lots of fear and uncertainty and loss of control as we are with COVID-19, that ability to stay present, take one moment at a time is really critical, I think, to uh, our survival and, and, and thriving in, in, even in difficult circumstances. Well said. If people want to find out more about you, um, all the things that you teach and offer, where should they go? Uh, chriscresser.com is my main website. Lots of free eBooks there linked to my podcasts and lots of articles. And then for my training programs, the, the health coach training program I mentioned, and we also have a 12 month functional medicine training program for doctors and other clinicians. Those are at cresserinstitute.com. Awesome, man. Dude, thank you so much. This is fun. I love your even keel approach. I love that you're not dogmatic. Um, I love that your thinking evolves. Um, it's yeah, it's incredible. Thank you so much for spending time Tom. with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it and enjoyed the conversation. Of course, dude. Well, hopefully this will be the first of uh, many to come in the future. I uh, will certainly be keeping an eye on everything that you put out. Uh, I've loved it so far. So thank you, man. Look forward to it. Yes, thanks. Definitely. Take care. All right, everybody. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now, building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.